Father, when we come into this place, when we come into desire to fellowship with the rest of your children, as we desire to give glory to you in worship and song, as we desire to receive from your word direction, power, counsel, life, and joy, and peace. Father, if your presence isn't here, if you're not inhabiting this place, it's empty. This building becomes just a building, just becomes walls and chairs and the fellowship becomes just a social club. Worship becomes just songs. And your word becomes just words. But when you come and you inhabit them, they become power. They become living. They become... Father, we are drawn into a place of intimacy. And that's what we desire, Lord. Above all things, we desire intimacy with you. We don't want to draw near to you with just our lips and have our hearts be far from you. Father, all these things we know that you do to draw our hearts closer to you. That's your command, to love you, to love you with all our hearts, all our minds, all our soul, all our strength. It's, it's about that is what you want more than anything else. Along with drawing near to you, Father, there are blessings and allow, and along with it not being true, Lord, there are our issues, there are complications. So we want to draw near with a true heart. We want to draw near with a sincere heart. And so, Father, once again, speak to us. Speak to us of the volume of your truth, of what we have, Lord, with you when we walk according to the ways that you call us to walk. And how everything else, Lord, it, we can't have that. It would be a false statement. The blessings, the curses are conditional. We can't have a curse when we're walking in the blessings, and we can't have a blessings when we're walking in the curse. And so knit us, Lord, knit us to a deeper understanding of the truth of the Christian walk. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Well, saints, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. We're now in 1 Samuel. We've made it through chapter 4 here this last Wednesday. And I want to focus on just this last verse here in chapter 24. And so if you're looking for a title for today's message, it's simply God's glory has departed and I think it's important to see the, the heart of what here this daughter-in-law of Eli comes to make this declaration. The daughter of Eli has found out that her husband has died. She's found out that her brother-in-law has died. She has found out that her father-in-law has died. And she has found out that the ark of the Lord has been captured by the Philistines and is no longer in the possession of Israel. And as she comes to this understanding of all of this, she comes to the point where she gives birth prior to her time. It's a premature birth. And when she does give birth, the midwives that are tending to her let her know God has blessed you with a son. You have a son. It's something that all of the, the women of Israel at that time would want. It was one of those things where you recognize this is a promise of God. God is furthering what he's doing. We have a son. And, and what she does is she calls his name Ichabod. The glory of God is gone. The glory has departed. And then she makes this statement, and I think it's so important 
where she says in verse 22, now this is our text, 1 Samuel 4, 22, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. It's interesting with all the news that she has, her husband's dead, her brother-in-law's dead, her father-in-law's dead. The only thing that she's focused on is the ark is gone. And in that, her mindset is the glory has departed from Israel. In other words, she was trusting in the ark. That's what she was doing. The, the, the glory of God is there upon the ark. And if the ark is gone, the glory is gone. And keep in mind that her mindset isn't a unique mindset. This is something that has been, you know, focused on in the entirety of chapter 4. If you're familiar with verse 3 of 1 Samuel 4, it says, And then when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. In other words, it's a talisman. That's what they're looking at. In verse 11, we see that it makes that statement, here the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And so here they were trusting in the ark. The ark is now gone. And so here in verse 22, she makes that statement, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. As if the glory of God is only upon the ark. And it was interesting that nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that there the Shekinah was there above the ark as they moved it. Because we know what? Well, the high priest could only go in once a year to see the ark. That's what he spoke to Aaron. And that was after he would sacrifice an ox for himself, a ram for the people. And, and here her whole mindset is the ark has departed. The glory of God is gone with the ark. And yet amazingly, what she doesn't see is that she has received, in a sense, with her son, this is a tangible evidence that what? That God's promise is still there. The son was born alive. And what we recognize is when we came into chapter 4, Remember at the very end of, of chapter 3, verse 21, then it says, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. At this point, we're recognizing that when God appears, when God reveals himself, it isn't through a Shekinah, it isn't through this tangible vision of glory, it's through what? Through his word. He is allowing Samuel to receive directly from God. Not something that's tangible, but something that's intimate. And then with that word that God is revealing himself with, chapter 4, verse 1 begins this. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. All of Israel is receiving and understanding that God is still here, that God is still moving, that God is still among you. But what happens? The evidence that God is among them is doing nothing to change their behaviors, is doing nothing to change the path of their lives. They still allow these wicked men to be priests, they still are doing what is right in their own eyes. None of them, and so far we do not see in the book of Samuel where the nation has come to a place of repentance. That is not in existence here. They're going about life the way they want to go about life. They're doing the things they want to do. And yet when they are doing these things and what we're seeing is they're drawing further and further away from God, there isn't a point of turning around and coming back. Not yet. 
And I find this amazing that here she has this mindset is the glory of God is gone, yet the word is still there. She has a son, which is evidence of the promise, but because the ark is missing, because the ark has now been captured, now all of a sudden she says, God is gone. As if God could only be there at the ark. Two passages I just want you to be aware of. Jot them down. Don't turn there. But I want to read to you in Psalm 26, verse 8, because this is kind of the mindset. They said, oh, Lord, I've loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. That we think that there in his house is the only place in where the glory of God dwells. Yet we understand what? <laughs> that, that's, that's not the, the, the fullness of where God dwells. David in Psalm 139 makes this statement. I want to start reading in verse 7, go through verse 12. You guys will realize it once I start reading the address, but the passage is, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. I'll if I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me and even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. Isn't that amazing that God is just light? And, and, and with him, even darkness is light. But keep in mind that we're not like God. God is just light. We're a little different. If you are familiar with that passage that Jesus, what he begins to declare in, in Matthew chapter 6, he actually declares this. I want to read to you two verses in Matthew 6, just so you can understand how we're not like God. In verse 22 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, The lamp of the body is the eye. And if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body shall be full of darkness. Therefore, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? See, God is just light. We bring into ourselves both light and darkness. What do you focus on? What do you perceive? What do you want in your own life? And I think it's so interesting. What images do you actually draw to? And, and to be honest with you, that, that what are the things that you hold before your eyes? And, and a lot of us are pursuing certain images now, I don't know if you understand how there are certain people that you may be aware of that literally pursue this image of prosperity. This is how I want people to see me. This is how I see myself. I see myself as prosperous. There are those who pursue that image of popularity. I want people to see me as, as popular. I want them to recognize. There are others who simply see these images of pursuit of pleasure. I want pleasure in my life. I want to have fun. I want to do things. And it seems like what God wants me to do hinders the fun that I believe that I should have. Others simply pursue that image of power. I'm going to climb up the scale and I'm going to be the boss and I'm going to be the one to, to dictate what is done and how it is done. And what happens is that here, their image of God was only in the ark and that God was present there on the ark, and that when the ark was gone, the glory was gone. And what they realized is that through their actions, God has been departing, but yet he does come and reveals himself to one man, Samuel. And he does so through his word. He speaks to Samuel again and again, and Samuel begins to speak to the people. Now, in a couple of weeks, we'll actually see the fullness of what God is going to be speaking and doing through Samuel once we get to chapter 7, and we'll just touch briefly on it at the end of the message here today. But I do want you to see that here, 
they were trusting in this talisman. They were trusting. If the ark is there, we're going to be victorious. If we're going to bring the ark into battle, God is going to defend his ark. And so often, this has been the mindset of the nation of Israel. That regardless of what we do, God has put his name either on the ark. He's put his character upon the ark. He's not going to allow that to be captured, would he? He's put his, his name, his title on the temple. He's not going to allow that to be destroyed, would he? He put his name there in Jerusalem. He wouldn't allow that to be conquered, would he? And yet the reality is what we, we so often look to say, can I live my life like I want to live my life, doing the things that I want to do and still expect God and his glory? And here, what they were wanting is this. They were wanting victory. They were wanting everything else. And, and, and God says, listen, you can't have me with that attitude. And there's an important thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of close with it, but I, I want you to, to just ponder for a moment. I'm just going to just reference it just so you can think about it as we go through this message, that there was a time that God had promised Moses to say, listen, I will bring you into the promised land. I will chase out the people there in the promised land. And I will provide for you in the promised land, but I won't be with you. And Moses panicked. God, God said, I'll bring you in there. I'll, I'll, I'll get you there. And I'll, I'll deliver you, all your enemies while you're in there. And I'll provide for you, but I'm not going to be anywhere near you. And Moses panicked. <laughs> what is all this stuff if you're not there? Do you understand? When you're not experiencing that intimacy with God, when you're not experiencing the very presence of God and his joy and his peace in your life, then I'll tell you what, then it's a little bit time to panic. But we all have this mindset as could God truly forsake, put your name on it, because he's God and he's good. And the answer is there, there's nothing that's sacred to God. Not the ark, not the temple, not Jerusalem. Unless our hearts are there. God says, I don't, I don't want to be there if your hearts aren't. And it's an incredible thing. If you would, there's two passages I want you to focus on here this morning. So if you would, please turn in your Bible to the Old Testament prophet of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. And what I want to do is I want to take these next few moments here and I want to share with you the mindset of they're expecting God to either bless his, his temple, to bless his nation, because he's God and he chooses to put his character upon the ark. He chooses to put his character upon the temple. He chooses to put his character, his name upon the city. But in Jeremiah chapter 7, Read with me. I want to just begin in verse 1, keeping in its fullness of the context. And I'm going to read down to verse 16. But it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word. Say here, the word of the Lord. All you of Judah who enter in these gates to worship the Lord. Now, understand what's happening. He says, I want you to go to the Lord's house. And I want you to speak to everyone who's entering into the gates to worship the Lord. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. They're coming in to worship the Lord. Now, as they're coming in to worship the Lord, we recognize and we understand that what they're doing is they say they're drawing near with their mouths, they're honoring God with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the fear is only what? Words. But as, as you see this now, he says, I want you to speak these words to everyone who's coming into worship. Verse 3, Jeremiah 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. In other words, 
get right. You're coming into this place, but your heart isn't right for this place. And I love the fact that what God does, he speaks to everyone that says, get your heart right. That's all. Get your heart right. And then in verse 4, he says, do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Three times proclaiming the, the, the power and the majesty and the solidity of the temple of the Lord. And he says this in verse 5. For if you thought, if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, and if you thoroughly execute judgment between man and his neighbor, and if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after the God's to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place and in this land and give to your fathers forever and ever. But behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. He says in verse 9, will you steal and murder and commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and walk after the other gods whom you do not know and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered to do all these abominations? Do you think that God saved you so that you could freely sin? It's incredible. Here's the grace of God. Is the grace of God so that we can sin even more? Paul's necessarily not. The salvation, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his blood, his death was not so that we could continue to sin, but so that we could turn wherever we were in our sin back to him and enjoy that life that God says is ours. And I think it's so important to note this and to look to this because when we see what's happening through this, God makes that powerful statement here in Jeremiah 7. He says, listen, you, you need to amend your ways, verse 5. Do you think that you can simply say, we're going to survive because of the temple. The temple's here, the temple. Nothing could happen to the temple. But, but he makes this statement in verse 10. You, you come and you stand before me. You, you do the sin, and then you think you can come and and." I'm going to protect you even while you're doing all these abominations. Now, notice what he says in Jeremiah 7, 11. He said, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of the people Israel. You understand, he says, remember what happened in Shiloh? I'm not here to protect talismans. I'm not here to protect arcs. I'm not here to protect buildings. I'm not here to protect property. And, and it's so important to think that, the, that God is like, well, he's going to watch over us. He's going to watch over us. It's amazing how many Christians say, if my people who are called by my name. Now, now they think America is always going to stand because we're America. We're a nation or God. Says, oh, no, 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 no. Unless we repent. Unless we turn from a direction. And we think that God is going to spare our country. He didn't spare Israel. He didn't spare Jerusalem. He didn't spare the temple because their hearts were far from them. And, and I want you to see here, notice again in verse 13 of Jeremiah 7. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you rising early up and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, in which this place I give to you and your fathers, as 
I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you, verse 15, out of my sight as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, or make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. God is making this powerful statement. Listen, you're trusting in this temple. I'm going to allow this temple to be destroyed. You're trusting in the ark. I'm going to allow the ark to go. Why? Because your heart isn't there. You actually think that a building that you can simply say, because we have this building, we can sin the way we want? That isn't it. Because we have the blood of Christ, I can sin the way I want? That's not what it is. He said simply, his blood has enabled us to draw close to God. But what does our sin do? Well, our sin causes us to be separate. I love when we were reading in the Proverbs this morning that there, and I think it was so important to make note of this because as Tim was going through the reading, he quoted there in Proverbs 12, verse 21, no grave trouble will overtake the righteous. Do you understand? The the righteous, God says, I'm going to protect, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. That God is going to watch over the righteous, but the wicked don't expect God to say, I'm going to watch over the wicked. A passage that you should be aware of, you you know this verse, I know that it's there in, in in your mind. You may not remember the address, but in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus is speaking to the church of Ephesus. As he speaks to the church of Ephesus, he makes this declaration. Now, this is the church that he says, listen, I I know that this is the one that, that here, I know your works, your labor, your patience. I know what you're doing. But he makes this statement in verse 5. He says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Here is where you were with God. When you accepted Jesus Christ into your heart, and you said, come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. I know you died for my sins and, and that, that my sins are paid for. And now I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. And, and I want to follow you. Whatever you say, I want to do. And you were in a place of, of just, just joy and forgiveness. And you didn't want sin in your life. But then eventually what happens? Well, well, that newness, the freshness of your salvation begins to wane. And then it's like, well, maybe I can do a little sin. Maybe I can go back to this other stuff. And, and I still have Jesus because I've accepted him in my heart. But I'm going to come back and keep in mind that when you accept these other things, when you move from that position of blessings, you move what? You move away from those blessings. And you're wondering, why aren't I being blessed like I was? Why don't I have that intimacy? Because God is here and we've moved over here. And he makes this statement, Revelation 2.5, to that church of Ephesus, remember from where you have fallen, repent, do the first works. Come back to just, just loving me with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Do the first works or else I will come to you quickly And remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Do you want to know what he's saying? I'm going to take my light from you. I'm going to take this light from you. You won't be able to experience my light and my intimacy, my glory, unless you do what? Unless you repent. Unless you leave that place where you're at and come back to the place where you know he's there. This is where God desires us to be. The other passage I want you to be aware of, turn if you will, go a couple books over from where you were in Jeremiah and turn to the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to camp here for just a little bit. And I'm actually going to take you through a couple of chapters, but not the chapters in their entirety. I want you to start in Ezekiel chapter 8, 
And I want you to see here a progression. What we're about to do is this. We're about to witness in um, Ezekiel chapter um, 8 all the way through 11, there's this understanding, this underlying of God's glory leaving the temple. And the, the statement is this. When God says, I'm going to leave the temple and the way that I'm going to set things in order when I leave the temple, we know that it's this vision that Ezekiel has. And within this vision that he has, it's a statement that God makes that when Babylon comes and wipes out the inhabitants of this city and destroys this temple... It is my will. I'm making a statement. I'm making a statement that what? Your heart isn't with me. And so my light is leaving. My glory is departing. Now we've already understood that the God's glory fills the entire earth. He, he can there. But what he's making the statement is this. That I'm removing my blessing. I'm removing my protection. And this is what he's making this vision to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 8, follow with me in the first four verses. It came to pass in the sixth year and the sixth month on the fifth day of the month as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me that the hand of the Lord fell upon me there. Then I looked and there was the likeness, the appearance of fire from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire from his waist and upward, like the appearance of the brightness, the color of amber. And he stretched out the form of his hand, and he took me by the lock of my hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven. And he brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. Now, he witnesses God's glory. But when he comes to the temple, he doesn't just see God's glory. What does he see? He sees the image of jealousy. He sees the corruption of men's hearts. And he sees this image, the, 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 the vileness of the corruption of men's heart. And, and also, he sees the glory of God. Now, when he's there and when he sees this glory, notice what begins to happen here in verse 5 of Ezekiel 8. Then he said to me, son of man, Lift your eyes now towards the north. So I lifted my eyes to the north. And there, northward, towards the altar gate, was the image of jealousy in the entrance. So when they walk in, their abominations were the main things. They came to the temple of the Lord, but they sought their abominations. Verse 6, furthermore, he said to me, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again and you'll see greater abominations. So here, note this. He sees the glory of God. He sees their abominations. And do you know what God says? Do you understand what they're doing? They're bringing in the corruption of their heart while they're worshiping me and they think they can have both. What I'm going to do is I'm going to allow them to have the corruption of their heart and I'm out of here. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, I'm going to be with them while they're seeking these abominations. But he says in verse 6, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. They're, they're forcing me out. They don't want me here. They just want their abominations. They don't want light. They don't want conviction. They don't want repentance. And so he says, you want to see? You think this is bad? It gets worse. 
Verse 7, so he brought me to the door of the court, and I looked, and there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, go in and see the, the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in, and I saw there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around the walls. And there stood before them 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. And then he says in verse 12, he said, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the, in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Now what he does is this. There is the temple proper, and then there are alongside the temple rooms for the priests and for the elders. He says, I want you to dig in and then see where they are because they're the leadership. They come in and they're able to house themselves around the temple. But he says, notice what they do. They have brought their abominations with them to the house of the Lord. And along with that, we begin to see here that they have these deeds, these secret deeds, these abominations that they do, and they bring it in along with their worship. In verse 13, and then he said to me, turn again. You'll see even greater abominations that they're doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, the women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz, the god of fertility. They were there saying, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? But they weren't seeking the Lord. They were seeking other ways to fulfill their desires. And then in verse 15, he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again and you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house and there the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple. So now, not only are the elders, but the ones that are, are being raised up, they're not looking towards the Lord. Their backs are towards the temple. And what they're doing is they're facing towards the east, and they're worshiping the sun. They're worshiping other idols. They're not looking to the light of God. They're looking to the light of the world. They're, they're looking to what the world can do for them, what the world wants to do to them. And then he says this in verse 18. He says, therefore, he said, also, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I shall not hear them. God says, I'm going to deal with them. And so he now in a vision begins to see how God will deal with them. In chapter 9, he calls out in his hearing, and then there, there comes these men. And as the, the men are coming, as he calls these men, he says in verse 1, Then he called in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near with a deadly weapon in their hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces the north, each with his battle axe in his hand, and one among them was clothed with a linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. So they now, people who will kill, and another man who will place a mark. It says this in verse 3, Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold. Now notice what's happening here in verse 3. The glory of God leaves the inner place, and it goes to the door of the temple. And as he goes to the door of the temple, I want you to recognize here what's going on. That God comes and he doesn't just leave, but he comes to the door and he pauses. He comes to the door and he pauses. In chapter 10, verse 4, it says, The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of his glory. You understand that God is hesitant to leave. I don't want to. I've warned you. And, and I'm going to let you experience the, the slight me leaving. And I don't want to just leave you. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn. You've got to come back from where you are. And yet they didn't. So when they don't turn, they don't repent. Guess what? The glory is going to get further and further away. 
But God, when he begins to back away, he hesitates. Do you understand? God doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to not have a relationship with you. He doesn't want to not have intimacy with you. But you can't have God and intimacy with God and sin at the same time. Now, all of a sudden, we see that here, he he says to the man who has this writer's inkhorn, he says in verse 4, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city and into the, the Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. He says, I want you to put a mark on the foreheads. It's interesting, when you look at the, the Hebrew, that, that word for mark is the word tau, or, or tav, T-A-V. And, and so what it is, it's basically it's a cross. In some senses, they, they, they make it as a cross on its side like an X, and others, they make it like a, a small T. And, and I think it's interesting that here, you put this mark on the foreheads. And, and the mark is, you, you put this, this, this tav on it. You, you, it's, it's the sign of the cross. Are they mine? Are they mine? The ones who sigh and, 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 and cry over the abominations. Does the sin bother you? Or are you so hardened to sin? It's like, well, it's just more sin. Now, when you see sin, do you get angry over the sin? Do you get bitter over the sin? Or are you broken over the sin? See, this is important because when Jesus saw sin... In the common people, he wept. When he saw the sin, the the brokenness of people, he wept. When he saw rebellion in the leaders, yeah, that was anger. But not in the people. You ever notice Jesus didn't get angry at the people? He saw them broken. The leaders who were leading the people, preventing them from coming near to God, keeping them in, in their places where they were, those he dealt with, but I love the fact that here God says, does anyone have my heart? My heart for sin. Are you broken because of sin? Is this a problem because of sin? And what's happening is, is God's glory goes, goes from this place where it was, it goes to the threshold and it pauses there. And we saw in chapter 10, verse 4, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub, paused over the threshold. And then we see in, ch- in chapter 10, verse 18, the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and now they stood over the cherubim and the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went, the wheels were beside them and they stood over the door of the eastern gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Now they're leaving the threshold and they're beginning to leave the temple mount. Do you understand that God's glory is now above the temple? And eventually what we're going to see is this. Once we get into chapter 11 of Ezekiel, and we read verses 22 and verse 23, it says, The cherubim lifted their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which on the east of the city, God leaves Jerusalem. Absolutely incredible to see what happens when God says, listen, I want you to change, I want you to change. But note this, just make a note. We've seen the progression of God's glory leaving. We've seen his hesitancy of his leaving. Now before he actually, when he's there at the Temple Mount, just prior to him leaving and going to the mountain, I want you to just Focus with me in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17, for just a moment. And in verses 17 through 21, he makes this statement. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the people, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And they will go there, and they will take away all that is all that is detestable things and all its abominations from there. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh and that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Do you understand? He said, come back to me and I'll do the work to change you. 
but you're going to want to come to me and want to have that work done. And he says this in verse 20, but as for those hearts that follow the desire for their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds upon their own heads, says the Lord. Absolutely amazing that God makes this statement, if you don't want me, I won't be around. And if you say you want me and you want your sin, guess what? I won't be around. Do you want me? Am, am I, am I the, the, the main thing? Like he told the church of, of Ephesus, come back. Come back. Do, do the first word. Come back to that first love. I want you to come back. Because if you don't, I'm going to remove the light. I'm going to remove the lampstand. And we begin to see that for whatever reason, God has no problem saying what? I'll leave you. I don't, I don't have to be here in your midst. If you want me here, I will be here. But the problem being is what we want to experience God in intimacy even when I'm walking away from God. Something's going to be missing. There's a passage, and, and you guys know it. I'm just going to read it to you. Found in Romans 3.23. But it says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When we sin, the, the glory isn't in the midst of the sin. The glory is what? In, in the midst of righteousness. This is God. This is his heart. This is what he desires. And when we come to that place of saying, I want to be there in your presence, Remember now, I told you we would quote from Exodus 33 where God had made a statement. And let me just read it to you in the first verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, depart and go up from here. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to your descendants. And I will send my angel before me and I'll drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. I will send you there. I will drive out the inhabitants and I will bless you. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. But he says in verse three, four, I will not go with you. All this you can have, but you can't have me. And then eventually Moses would come and it's so amazing that he makes this statement where he comes to the Lord in verse 15 of Exodus 33. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. I don't want to go anywhere until I know that you're with me. I don't want any blessings until I know that you're with me. And here, as that wife of Phineas, the daughter-in-law of Eli, as she comes and she recognizes and makes that statement, the glory of the Lord is departed. The glory of the Lord is departed. I want you to focus as we close, and I want you to focus on just a passage that we're going to be getting to in a couple of weeks. 1 Samuel chapter 7. When we think the glory is departed, the glory has not left. They've left the glory. Do you understand? There's a difference. God is still where he is, where he's always been. The blessings are still there. Life is still there. Peace is still there. Joy is still there. But we walk away. And then we go, why has God left me? He hasn't left. He's still where he's always been. But we are the ones who leave. Now there in 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the ark comes back, God is going to, in the next couple of weeks, we see he doesn't need Israel to fight for him. God's going to just deal with it himself. And eventually what happens is the Philistines will send the ark back. And then as Israel receives the ark, they initially don't do it the way they're supposed to. But then in chapter 7, then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord. And they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was. Verse 2, that the ark remained in care of that germ a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So in other words, God was not there. The ark was not in the tabernacle of Shiloh for over 20 years. Just not there. God said, remember what I did in Shiloh? I'm not there. 
You're not there. Your heart's not there. Now verse 3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts. Do you notice what he's saying? Repent. I love verse 3 of 1 Samuel 7. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, put away the foreign gods of the Asherahs from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. Then he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherahs and they served the Lord only. Do you understand what they did? They repented. They listened to the word of the Lord. And as they repent, notice what happens. Verse 5, Samuel said, gather all Israel and Mizpah and pray to the Lord, and I will pray to the Lord for you. I want you to gather, and, and, and let me pray over you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, verse 6, drew water, poured out the water before the Lord, and they fasted that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard the children of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, they'd already taken the ark once. They've already beaten them up a couple of times. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord God for us, for he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Do you understand the difference? Back in chapter 4, Verse 3, they said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh that when it comes, it may save us. And now they got it right. Now in chapter 7, they come back where they say, cry out to the Lord for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now notice they come to a place of repentance. They come to a place of confession and yet they don't demand God do it. God, only if it's in your will. He may save us. He, he might. Well, verse 9, Samuel takes a suckling lamb and, and offered as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. This is God. God is now fighting. And then in verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Do you understand what was happening? Why all of a sudden was the change? Because their hearts had changed. See, the issue being is so often when we don't experience that intimacy with God, say, God, why don't I have intimacy with you anymore? Why have you left me? And God says, I didn't leave you. You left me. Come back. Leave. Leave those areas of sin and, and, and where, where you're, you're wanting to have these other images before your eyes. When you're wanting to have that image of, of popularity and prosperity and, and, and pleasure and power, all of those things. And yet, do you ever want to come as an image of what? A servant? Do you want to come as an image of a servant? I want to come as Jesus came. One who serves, one who loves. One who wants to give a message. And I love the gospel the gospel is so important. Do you understand that when John the Baptist began to preach the gospel, first words out of his mouth, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus comes on the scene, when he begins to pro proclaim the gospel, what's the first thing he says? Repent. When Peter begins to preach there, first things out of his mouth, repent. When the Apostle Paul receives his sight, first words out of his mouth, repent. Absolutely incredible to see what it is that God does and through his word. And I want you to understand that God says, I'm here and the blessings are here, but you can't bring your old life in. What does he say about the old life? It's dead. It's crucified. It's done away with. 
Don't resurrect it. Don't bring it back. Let the old man and his deeds die and come into this new resurrected life. And what happens is this. When you come into desiring this new resurrected life, you have to understand God gives you a new heart. God gives you the power. God gives you the joy. It's his gift to you. He doesn't leave you empty. I'm going to empty myself of all this other stuff, and now what do I have? God says, no, no, you empty the garbage. I'll fill in the blessings. I'm going to keep you full, but you can't be full of the blessings when you're full of the things that cause the curse. And this is so important to recognize that there in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, that there they're on these two mounts, Mount Gerizim, and Mount Ebal. And, and there's going to be one. Mount Gerizim is the Mount of Blessings. Mount Ebal is the Mount of Cursings. The amazing thing, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this in Deuteronomy 27, when it comes to the curses, the curses are over and over and over, and you have just multiple, multiple curses that are there. The curses in, in chapter 27 run from verse 13 all the way to verse 26. That's a lot of curses. But then when it comes to the blessing, the blessings are really are only from verses 2 to verse 8 when, when, when you really come in. And, and so, I mean, you can, you can maybe go up to 12, but, but it, the blessings are what? It's not as much as the curses, but the blessing is what? You'll have me. You'll have me. You'll have me. And, and, and when, when you have me, when you seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added. You'll have the fertility and you'll have the, the, the blessings and you'll have the, the, the food and you'll have all these things. But they come what with me. And I think it's so important to make a note here that this is what God wants from us. He says, are you going to want to let these things go and just draw close? Because I've made the way. I've made the way. You can come boldly to this throne of grace. You can come boldly into my presence. And you can experience this intimacy with me. And this is God's promise. This is what God desires and what God has fulfilled. In just a moment, we're going to have communion. We're going to be able to worship God in the intimacy that, that he desires. Now, to note this, when we come to a place of communion, it's the focus on what? What he has done, what he has done, what he has done. Our focus is on him. If you're familiar with that passage there in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul makes this statement. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he said he took the bread. He took the bread. And in verse 11, he makes a statement, and when, or verse 24, he says, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not, not of you. You're going to take my broken body, my work that I have done, and you're going to just take this, and you're going to receive this. You're going to let my body come into your body. Your body absorb my body, this bread, and you're going to do this in remembrance of me, my work, what I've done to deliver you from sin, to say you can come close because I allowed my body to be broken and you can now partake of this. Verse 25, it says also in the same manner, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It's a new covenant. Not the covenant of the law, not the covenant of death, but it's a covenant of life. If that covenant of death had glory, the, the, the new covenant of life has much more glory. And he says, I want you to receive the, 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 the payment for your sins. This cup, this new covenant, this promise of mine, and I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Do you understand? It's about him. It isn't about us anymore. I, I, I paid for your sins. I've delivered you from those sins. And he says this, so now 
As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You are proclaiming victory. Jesus said what? It is finished. It is finished. I have done it. And when we come to communion, keep in mind, it's so important to come and to recognize that I want to receive your work. I want to come intimately into your presence. And I want to partake of you and your work. And I want you to be my focus. Only you to be my focus. I want your work to be my focus and only your work to be my focus. Come into this declaration of victory. And I think it's so important that when we do this, keep in mind, when we come to this place of communion, when we come to noting the cost that was for our sin, no one thinks, wow, I really wish I could sin more. To cause him more pain and more anguish. No, we, we want to reject those things. And we say, no, what I want is what you want for me. I want to come into your presence and I want to stay in your presence. If your presence isn't with us, then we don't want to just go and have life. Now, now keep in mind that you can just have, where you can experience life here in the church I'm going to come and I'm going to experience Jesus here. And then you're going to go out in the world and do what? And you're going to sin? Is that what you're going to experience? You're just going to come and just have a little part of what the, the, the church is and the joy is and the passion is in the church. And then you're going to go and you're going to just do what you want to do after that? The only, the only passion you have is just, I'm going to just get what I want in church and then I'm, I'm free for the rest of the week. That's <laughs> not the heart is that God is doing a work here. Take this work and bring it out with you. For those of you that weren't here this morning, Tim gave an amazing, amazing conclusion as we finished up Proverbs 12. He talked about there in, in, in verse 27, a lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but a diligent man is precious. But diligence is man's precious possession. And he talks about that this lazy man doesn't roast what he took in hunting. And he made this statement that, you know, here he is, his own pleasure is just a hunting, not, not the cooking of the meat. He just wants to hunt. That's his pleasure. I, just, I, want, I want to do that. The rest I don't want. And so he's willing to hunt, but he's not willing to, to take the meat and to let it progress with him further by roasting it so I can have it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And how many people come to church and say, wow, I'm going I'm to slay the beast. But then what? I'm not going to take it with me. I'm not going to take it home. I'm not going to attribute what I need to do with this food that God has given me. I'm not going to prepare it. I'm not going to use it. I'm just going to do what I want with it. And as we look to this, when we come to communion, note this. It's his work. And it is a beautiful work that he's done. And he's done it so that what? So that we don't have to sin. Our old man is dead. It has been crucified with him. And then if you take that stand, if you hold on to that promise that I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is my promise. This is my hope. This is my life. You can either come to that place in error, like Eli's daughter-in-law that says the glory of God has departed. Understand, the glory of God is still there. God in his glory and God in his promises and God in his love and God in everything is still there. But you come back to that place, back to that place. And that's what communion does. It offers you a chance. They just come right back. Why? What do I have to do? Well, ultimately, if you're sinning, you repent like we've been told. Come back. But, but you can't stay in that place. You've got to come to God, come into his presence, come into his place. Say, you know what? I'm going to let everything else go except you. I'm going to just focus on you. I'm not going to be focusing on all these other things that, that we saw the people there in Ezekiel's vision focus on. 
We're not going to be focusing on, I want the people to see me in power and prestige and prosperity and, 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 and pleasure. These are the things that I, I see myself at and I see myself pursuing. No, the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. I want you and your glory. That's all I want. And, and I want to be coming to you and coming to the midst. And so in just a moment, we're going to be handing out the communion. Regan and Marianne are going to be leading us in worship. And when we do, I want you to recognize that this is God's promise. He says this, come near to me and let me come in you, take the bread. And, and, and the amazing thing is that do you understand how Paul's progression is? When, when Jesus did this, he didn't say, well, take of the blood so that you can be cleansed and then I'll come in with you. That's not what he does. He says, take of the bread and I'll come in with you just as you are. Now, when I'm in you, guess what? The blood's going to do the work. When I'm in you, there's going to be a sanctification. When I'm in you, there's going to be a cleansing. And this is what God does. So um, in just a moment, we're going to be handing out communion, but, but let's come with that heart of saying, I want to do this in remembrance of you. Amen? Father, we're so grateful for this, your word. So grateful that so often we think that, that you have departed. You have departed. And, and the reality is that our hearts have departed. And if our hearts are departed, we're not at that place that we should be. We're not at that place where we can receive the fullness of your blessings. And so, Father, we're simply asking that by your grace and by your goodness that you would lead us, you would guide us, that you would knit us to your heart, and that through this time, Lord, that we would enter in and receive fully all that you have for us. We are the ones who leave the place. And so we come back, as, as you called, as you wrote to the church in Ephesus, that, that come back, repent. We don't want your light to leave. We don't want to experience the things of this life without you because with you there's hope. With you there, there, there's, there's life. With you there's joy. Outside of you there's nothing. There's despair. But with you there's all the things that we need and all the things that we desire. So... Thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us this morning to let things that are not pleasing to you go. Thank you for reminding us that there's still those things in our life. They don't control us. You do. And as we let them go, they're just gone. You have forgiven us and you've taken them as far as the east is from the west. And we recognize, Lord, that that's not your heart. But we now want to come back to that place, to the heart. Like Samuel would teach the children in, in, in 1 Samuel 7, come back. And know that, Jesus, you are interceding. In the same way that Samuel prayed for the children, you, Jesus, are interceding. You, Holy Spirit, are interceding. There's power in your prayers. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for not allowing us to stay where we're at. Thank you for drawing us close. Be glorified as we enter into your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.